Well, it's a separate challenge uh, when I step out on the grass. I feel um, like the game changes. Everything, everything about it is different. It's a very different surface. You kind of have to learn the surface again. There's not much emphasis on, on defense. Like if you, if you want to play defense on grass, then good luck. You just have to adapt now very fast because the, the, the grass season is not long. Your weaknesses are exploited on grass, so you can't really hide them. So you need to adjust your movement and the steps, and it's just uh, you know very very different. And obviously the bounce is uh, much much lower. It's not even so much faster. It's just uh, much lower. So you you need to get used to that as well. Grass is the lowest bounce and clay is the highest bounce. So even this one, just for the eyes itself, it's already tough. So first, uh, usually first day you play on grass, I mean, you're gonna hit all the balls behind you and you you're not you don't want to do it, but uh, it's gonna happen. So then your eyes get used to and you try to, to, to find something that's gonna work. So it's, um, you know, you can steal a point like here and there, but like most of the time you're gonna be not so successful. So you just you gotta be aggressive, gotta, you know, be, be first to the dance there. <laughs> and the, just the most important thing was only about surf and return. If you return hard, doesn't matter where, even in the middle is more than enough. A little bit maybe too tall for grass cords, but it's still a surface that, that I can play well, and uh, I know that. You don't see players sliding or being lazy in the footwork. You have to be really uh, concentrated on every single step, and uh, makes it uh, for sure the most uh, intense thing about grass that your footwork changes, your movements change. You know things that you're used to do whole year round don't really apply anymore, and uh, it's just also letting loose sometimes. And you know you cannot be tight on grass; you have to be loose. Stefanos Tsitsipas there with Alexander Zverev, Hubi Hercatch, Yannick Sinner, Borna Choric, Daniel Medvedev and Andrei Rublev on the art and the challenge of playing grass court tennis. Hello and welcome to another ATP podcast. I'm Seb Lozier and we are now very much into the swing of things on grass. This week we have all the reaction to a wonderful week of tennis both here in Halle, Germany and also at the Queen's Club in London. We have a certain Roger Federer on life after retirement, another former Wimbledon champion, Richard Krejcik, on his rivalry with Pete Sampras. But first, let's round up all the action, starting here in Halle, where Alexander Bublik has beaten Andrei Rublev to claim a first title on grass. Alex, huge congratulations. It is an extremely illustrious list of players who've won this title. Tell us what it means to join them and, and win a first title on grass. Well, it means really the world to me. I mean, I've been struggling for half a year, as I mentioned, and now having this as a reward, I mean, I don't take it as granted. It's hard work. And yeah, I was walking through the little Hall of Fame here before the, entering the court for the very first time against Struff, and I was like, wow, like different names, you know, a lot of guys I'm familiar with. And yeah, I said, wow, that would be nice maybe to have it one day, but I could not even imagine that I would win this tournament. And well, I'm really, really happy. You started so quick, but Andre really made you work for it in the in the third set, didn't he? Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, Andre is established top ten, top five player. Of course, beating him here, it's a big, big challenge, and I'm happy to get through. Just finally, 26 in the world now, a career high. Congratulations on that. 
What kind of boost does that give you going into Wimbledon? And I think before that, Mallorca as well. Well, let me process this one. I don't want to talk about the rank. I just want to enjoy being in the moment and leave now. Congratulations to Alexander Bublik, a second tour title and a very first on grass. So it wasn't to be this time for Andrei Rublev, but he did come through with flying colours when his fellow players put him on the spot. So I've had some of your fellow players send in some video questions for you. You're going to watch them and answer them for the camera. I don't know, seeing Daniel on video, I don't like it already. What was the record when you had uh, Salman Sashimi in a row? I would think probably something around like 45. <laughs> He's a monster. <laughs> Actually, 45 maybe never, but around 30, I think, was happening. But 45 could be easily sashimi in total, like having salmon, uh, then maybe tuna, something else, like in general, or maybe even more than 45. So you ate 30 and one sitting? Huh? You ate 30 but of them? Like salmon, only salmon, around 30, I think, at least once I eat for sure. All right, Andre, I got to go on. Um, why, why do you make that, uh, that one like really distinct noise when you, uh, you grunt? Which, which specific noise? Oh, we, know, we, we all know, we all know. <laughs> Taylor, man, uh, if I can make <laughs> different noise or more beautiful, I, I, I wish, I don't know. <laughs> but I don't know. Before I was not even noticing that I'm doing that noise till they start to put it on social media. It happens, op I don't know, always different. Sometimes there is some matches that I'm not really making any noise at all. And then, I don't know, when I want to go for the shot, it comes natural, I don't know. Maybe it gives a bit extra power. So Andre, again, Daniel? You have a breakpoint to save. Are you going? Are you going down the tee or wide? So I know for the next time when we play. If I play Daniel and I need to save breakpoint against him, I'll go straight down to his face. And then maybe I save the match like this with one with one serve. He's gonna watch this later and figure yeah, that out. <laughs> so that's why. Okay, Andre, tell me about your new brand. Oh no. <laughs> She make, you know why she started to laugh like that? Because uh, she makes so much fun already about it. Not much to say, I don't know. Do you like having your own brand so far? Uh, to be honest, there was many times I was thinking what I'm doing, like uh, what a clown I am or something, like who you think you are, like uh, Balenciaga or what, like doing this thing, acting like uh, you're uh, someone. Uh, but then when I start to think deeper about the purpose why I started, then it covers all these bad thoughts. So we'll see, that's why the, probably what's gonna come for Alan Gross is very special for me. Hello, Andre, Diego here. I just want to ask you if you take some holidays anytime or just playing tennis 100% of the years. With <laughs> uh, holidays, is always tough. I never went to a real, real holiday yet. Even last year, I had five days off. Most of them I spent traveling, so, but to go holiday, holiday, real, somewhere on an island for the moment I didn't do it yet. I think you need to take one. Diego sounded worried about you. Yeah, then I take Diego with me there. <laughs> what, to, what to say? It's a good player to go on a holiday with. 
for sure. At least he, maybe he will teach me how to dance. <laughs> let, let me find a third question. Again, Daniel, man. Yeah. What was the least hours you slept during the week? Uh, so, if we take the week that I have no tennis at all, maybe the total amount will be around 30, 35 hours. In a week? Yes. Around three, five hours a day. It's not a lot. No. Because there was some nights that I didn't sleep at all. Then maybe I sleep for five hours, like two days completely not sleeping and I sleep five hours. Then maybe next day again, five, six hours, then two hours. So you don't operate off of a lot of sleep? No, I try. I'm forcing myself every time on tournament to sleep eight hours. When I'm having week off without tennis, then nothing. You, your password? Uh, all zeros. Uh, zero, zero, zero. I went to your safari. <laughs> last, last search that you did. <laughs> so, question for Andre. What was the first time that we met? And what was the score of the first time that we actually played against each other? Uh, first time that we met, I remember, was in Mallorca. Uh, first time that we met was in Mallorca. Under, I don't know, 12 or something years old tournament. Uh, at an under 14 grade 3 tournament. We were 11 years old though. And I remember he went out from elevator and everybody like uh, knocking, it's you, it's you, it's you. We were thinking it's you walking there. And I look at Sasha and I say, no chance, I look like this guy. <laughs> and the first time that we played each other was the same year in Moscow. And it was uh, once at all and it was super tiebreak till 10 and I think it was something like dramatic 10-8. Like, you know, typical uh, typical match that both of us doesn't want to play because it's a cancellation, no motivation at all. But then when you start to play, you don't want to lose. So in the end we finish more motivated than <laughs> the main matches that we lost with him. I think it was third set tiebreaker, which was 10-7 or something like that. So we played a Champions tiebreaker as a third set. I won 10-8 something in yep. the super tiebreaker. That's how he told the story as well. How, how are those questions? Mm, fun. Nothing too bad, right? Nothing too bad. Thank you to Daniel Medvedev, Arena Zabalenka, Diego Schwartzman and Alexander Zverev for putting the questions to Halle finalist Andrei Rublev. He will enter the Wimbledon draw with a great deal of confidence, which is exactly what the great Roger Federer seemed to be able to do year after year. Midweek, he paid a visit here to Halle to help celebrate the tournament's 30th birthday. But I started by asking him about life after retirement. I am very surprised at how often and how frequently I check scores. Um three times a day maybe. Then of course all of a sudden there's days where I check out for like a week and then uh, I'm with the kids and I'm traveling and I'm gone and uh, you know you forget about everything around yourself. But uh, for the most part actually I'm really into it. Uh, I think there's some great matches going on. I try to check some, some highlights. 
reels more than you know watching games per se because uh, <laughs> my life's also a little bit busy but I'm really entirely happy and I think um, the level of play I feel like it's going up more and more again and again you know so it's it's nice to see that and also the new generation you know challenging still the likes of Novak and you know and also Rafa I hope he comes back you know but also him so it's um, it's good times in tennis and I always said that tennis is so great and always keep on evolving um, so Big fan of tennis and uh, what, the, what all the players are doing is absolutely fantastic. You say you're a big fan of tennis. How much do you still play the game? And also, how much does that make you want to visit more tournaments? Yeah, I mean, this is my first time back to a tournament. Um, so it feels a little bit strange in a very good way. Um, I always feel once you've retired, you need a proper purpose, you know, to come back. And that's why we are here to celebrate, you know, the 30-year anniversary um, of the tournament here in Halle. Um, I don't play so much uh, anymore, uh, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, I haven't booked the court yet, called up a friend and said, let's go play tennis. You know, that hasn't happened yet, but I play a lot with my children. Uh, so I try to help them a little bit, trying to be a coach, but not easy, you know. But it's, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, some good, good moments and it's going to create some good memories for us. So, um, yeah, but uh, hopefully down the road I can play some exhibitions again, you know, um, when the body's healed up and uh, all ready to go but for the time being I'm just really happy away from the game uh, but like I said I, I follow it uh, still pretty closely You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast available on iTunes, Spotify TuneIn and ATPTour.com while all this was happening in Halle, in London, Spaniard Carlos Alcaraz returned to world number one by beating Alex Deminor to claim his first grass court title. Carlos, you've won this great championship on your debut here. What does this mean to you? Well, it means a, a lot to me, you know, be able to, to win this tournament, you know, this amazing tournament, you know, in my uh, first time that I play here. Uh, for me, it's uh, fantastic, you know, uh, to know that I'm a uh, great level on grass and uh, obviously, you know, uh, champions of, uh, of every tournament feels, feels special. You're going to return to the number one ranking in the world now. What does this mean for your chances for Wimbledon? Well, uh, well, the, the, the chances they, uh, doesn't change uh, so much. You know, I mean, Novak is, is coming to Wimbledon, so uh, I mean, right now I'm, I'm feeling I'm feeling better. You know, than the beginning of the of the week. That's obviously, uh, and obviously, uh, and of course, recovering the number one before Wimbledon. You know, gives you uh, extra motivation and gives you extra confidence. You know, coming into Wimbledon, but. Uh, you know, I, uh, it doesn't change too much, you know, if I uh, play Wimbledon as a number two or as a number one. Congratulations to Carlos Alcaraz for his first title on grass, returning to world number one and securing a fifth title of the season already. That's as many as he claimed in the whole of 2022, which is an ominous sign for everyone else. Falling as he did to Carlos Alcaraz at the semi-final stage, American Seb Corder can look back on a job well done after a lengthy timeout with a wrist injury. And that was the focus when he sat down with Jill Krabus earlier in the week. Yeah, you know, it was a lot of hard work the last couple of months and now finally to be able to just be back on a tennis court. You know, I'm super thrilled, I'm super happy and, um, you know, I'm starting to finally play some, some really good tennis again. So it's, um, you know, it's all coming down to uh, a, lot, a lot more practice now on the practice court and, you know, just kind of getting my feet back and, you know, just keep enjoying it. As an athlete in general, how was that time for you off to have to take those few months off? 
Yeah, it was very tough. The only thing I could really do was just uh, watch a bunch of sports. That was probably the only thing because I couldn't couldn't play tennis, couldn't play any other sport really because my wrist kind of had to be involved into everything. So it's um, yeah, it was just a lot of time in the gym, a lot of time um, on the track running and, and kind of moving on court. That's about it. Did you get to experience other things that you're passionate about that not necessarily because the calendar year is not great for that sort of thing to be able to have time to do that were you able to have time to enjoy other things yeah for sure I was uh, at home quite a bit with obviously with my parents I don't really get to see them too much uh, occasionally my sisters would would pop in and out uh, when they weren't at tournaments um, and yeah just kind of playing video games with my friends or hanging out with them that's kind of something I don't really get to do as well when I'm traveling so it was um, a lot of fun kind of just recharging everything and uh, and then getting back onto uh, back on the tour for a couple months and you know kind of just getting back into it I'm curious if that sets up your year differently because the year is a very long year, but now that you've had that long break, do you feel like you can almost make an extra push and do more for the rest of the year? Yeah, I think uh, it definitely allows me to play uh, a lot more tournaments in a row, um, hoping that my wrist kind of gets used to playing again and obviously doesn't have so many aches and pains, but um, so far so good and you know hopefully I can just kind of play every week now just to just to really bring my uh, some good tennis again. And how is it on the grass because I know sometimes it can be tricky on the I know you start on the clay but how is it on the grass bend the wrist is it feeling okay so far? Yeah I was a little worried going into it because you know the ball sometimes slides a little more on the, on the grass and you can catch it late but um, you know so far everything is is going well so far and you know just really enjoying myself here. I, you've made some changes to your team I've learned. I talked to your new strength and conditioning coach, Jez Green, this morning. Um, how did that come about, that partnership, and how has he impacted your recovery so far? Yeah, we uh, we started uh, earlier this year, and you know I think he's probably one of the best additions I've had to my team in in, um, in this short short period. Um, you know, he's definitely a very experienced, a very well respected trainer on, on the tour uh, you know he's had a lot of great players he's built a lot of amazing uh, bodies on the tour and you know just very happy to kind of have him in my team and and to uh, kind of trust the process and, and do all the right things with him and you know hopefully one day I can have a body like uh, like a bunch of the other players that he's trained so are you are there specific things that you're that you both had goals on to work on to to get healthy on and to mm-hmm. also obviously progress and get better yeah, definitely. Obviously, to add a couple more uh, kilos onto my body, I was I was a very skinny, skinny person. I was probably about six five, um, eighty kilos. So I was I was pretty thin. Uh, so definitely putting on uh, a lot of muscle and just getting the speed up on everything. You know, it's a it's a very um, physical game and just getting my body ready for for those long matches. And when that's something that you do when you add kilos, because you're such a good mover, efficient mover, is that something that takes a little while to get used to when you're adding that strength and muscle? Yeah, definitely. When I come back onto the clay, I was kind of all over the place. <laughs> Just kind of getting the reactions again uh, was very tough for me, but I think I'm uh, slowly kind of getting everything back, and I think um, I'm starting to feel a lot more comfortable with everything. I know this is, is this is something new for you, right, to add a strength and conditioning coach travel. Mm-hmm. How is that helping you in particular for that support, just to have that extra support while you're traveling on the tour? Yeah, I think it's uh, – I've definitely never done it in the past. I know a lot of players are, are doing it and kind of just uh, learning from other players and how they're doing uh, just to – kind of get the body warmed up in the right way for practice, being kind of 100% ready, getting the legs ready. And uh, I think it's uh, a really big key to kind of have on these bigger tournaments. And, you know, I think uh, kind of going into matches, I think physically and everything, you just feel just 
better about yourself and that you feel like you're ready to go. And then just talking about your game in particular, you have pretty much an all-around game, really great mover. Is What are your individual goals to be able to per- keep progressing and get better? Not, not only this year, but do you, how far in advance do you look at that? Yeah, definitely. It's a, a long-term program. I'm not trying to play my best tennis right now. Um, even though when I do play some of my best tennis, I'm, I consider myself a, a very top player in the tour right now. Um, but definitely, uh, definitely have a, a long-term plan of just playing. Being healthy is probably the most important thing, and you know whatever whatever happens happens. But you know, I'm just enjoying it, being on tour again, and hopefully I can stay healthy and play some good tennis again. One of the wonderful things about this time of year is the light also shone on wheelchair tennis. And one of its finest exponents is Alfie Hewitt. Alongside longtime partner Gordon Reed, he has 17 Grand Slam doubles titles, and he also has seven in the singles. Well, I think uh, it's a feeling that you can't really describe because, you know, as a tennis player, you, you have this goal in mind, you have the tournament that's around the corner, and you work hard, you train hard for that event, and then it all, I'm saying all the time it goes well, but then when it goes well, you celebrate it, you enjoy it. And then there's always something maybe a couple of weeks later. So they, they sort of just rack up without even knowing. And that sounds really <laughs> like ungrateful almost, but it is true. And it's only until you really sit there, maybe when you're at home, you've got 10 minutes to think in the car and you think, ah, oh, this, is, this is actually quite, um, quite special what's happening. Like, see the relationship that me and Gordon have to have 17 or to win 17 Grand Slam titles, like... It's a, it's, a, it's a remarkable achievement, and you know, it's been okay. It's been over a four or five year period now, if not a bit, a bit longer. Um, but it is. It's amazing, and it's just it's very rewarding. You know, it's it's a quite a demanding job, a lot of sacrifices. Um, you know, we train six full days a week, traveling twenty weeks of the year. You know, it's a, it's a different to your to your normal nine to five job and um, with that it has its perks I you know absolutely love playing playing on the tour and being in events like this but when you then at the end of it get to get to have a few trophies to yeah. um, to, to look back on it's uh, it's a rewarding feeling for sure where do you keep all this hardware uh, well, <laughs> it's quite a, quite a few trophies in multiple to to, in yeah. multiple uh, places at the moment I've got a, a cabinet at my mum's place but then I also have a shelf in, in mm. my own place at the moment so um, we managed to fill the cabinet up at the moment which is a good sign yeah. so maybe we need to, to stick a, a few more shelves up but um, yeah I like uh, I like to look back and something that you know one day when I have my own family and everything yeah. I can I can uh, you know share with them and show off in a, in a little way well, it's been it's been absolutely amazing to follow your career. We follow it every year, and you're still so young, just 25 years of age. 25, yeah. Is was tennis always something that you were focused on, or did you try other sports, or was tennis always your passion? Uh, first, I was uh, I was really keen into my football. Um, that was before I got diagnosed with my hip condition, which which meant I was wheelchair bound. Uh, what, what age was that? I was at seven. Seven. So um, yeah, I always had dreams of being a professional footballer and wanting to go to distance there. I was a goalkeeper, but I only grew 5-5 five, five in the end, so I don't know <laughs> if that would have worked out particularly well for, for me. But um, yeah, obviously got this condition and was told I had to be in a chair, which as a seven-year-old, you know, was very, very difficult to, to, to process. And that's where my family recognized that I was... You know, probably in a bit of a dark place and, and struggling struggling a little bit mentally so um, 
they they turn to, to wheelchair sport and disability sport and I just trialed lots of different sports at the time it was like you name it I've done it I've trialed it and the main three that um, that I came out really enjoying was obviously wheelchair tennis, uh, wheelchair basketball, and funny enough, archery. That was archery? A bit, yeah, it was a, that was a bit of a rogue one, wow. but um, there was something about that, that that I really enjoyed, and it was just fun to, to gather every, I think it was like a Tuesday evening, and just shoot shoot some targets. And do make, you still do that sometimes? Nah, not okay. anymore. No. Okay. I, do you know what? I, I wish I could get back into it now, because... Well, you're only 25, so... I know, I know. <laughs> Even just leisurely, you know, just for fun, yeah. just to see what it was like, because back then... Um, I probably didn't appreciate it as much as what I would da- would, would do now because I was doing so much. I was like, "Mum, why are you dragging me everywhere?" Like, I, you know, I was obviously wasn't happy about that. But now I look back and I'm like, "Okay, I'm so so uh, grateful that you, know, you pushed me to, to do all those things because it was scary. Like, I, I wasn't um, the most confident being in a chair and uh, being in a new environment, you know, doing a sport that I do nothing. I just didn't want to be there, and um, you know, I'm obviously extremely lucky to have that opportunity and be playing sport ever since then is something I maybe wouldn't be doing if it wasn't for for them so yeah I'm I'm always in debt to to them about about that but I played wheelchair basketball until I was about 16 17 and so for many years it was tennis and and wheelchair basketball and uh, you know they're they're completely two different sports you've got the the social part of, of basketball I had a good group of mates there very intense end-to-end stuff a lot of passion as well <laughs> a lot of crashing and, and injuries and whatever and I just loved that like you just brought out this animal in me and then tennis was just a bit different gave different challenges different mental challenges problem solving you know you're out there pretty much by yourself and there was parts of that I liked and parts of that I didn't like and there was parts of wheelchair basketball I liked and didn't like and and in the end I, I felt that tennis definitely had more more of a career path and I started to take it up a bit more seriously, um, train more, compete more, and had to knock basketball on the head, which you know I do miss. I love that side of it, but I was too too crazy to to not stay uh, to stay fit and healthy. Yeah. There was always a you know some incident or a bump or a fall out of my chair and twinge something. So when I was starting to get into Grand Slams and um, the Masters and things like that, I was like, I need to I need to look after my body now. And unfortunately, that. I had to stop doing that. Yeah. Well, you've said a lot there. I think the one thing I want to kind of focus on is, you know, you said it was a challenge at such a young age to be able to deal with having to be in a chair. How much going through that, as tough as it was, do you feel like has helped you? Because tennis is such a mental sport, right? How much of that do you feel like has made you stronger to be able to be so successful? Yeah, I think it's um, it's made me learn a lot about myself. I mean, strength it can can be defined and interpreted in any way you want it to be, right? So, um, it's not really a definition for that. But I feel like I, I learned my, you know, my place, my mental place, and the different zones and uh, thoughts and behaviours that probably stem from all of that. And you know, I learned I learned a lot from my tennis about what I went through as a kid because tennis brings out a lot of stress. And, you know, your back's up against the wall. You're put in a corner at times, quite, quite literally. And you've got to find your way out of it. And I feel like I can, I can turn to that period of my life where maybe, you know, I felt there was no way out. I didn't know what was around the corner and a lot of negative thinking and, um, you know, so a, lot of, um, a lot of sad emotions that were going on. And that can be 
similar in, in different ways. When you are playing and you're traveling and you're away from home, it could be quite lonely. So you can you can certainly take a lot of yeah a lot of tools and, and courage and, and the attitude that you you take because it's all about perception. In, in my opinion, that like you can perceive a situation to be um, a lot worse than maybe what it is, or you can try and look for the the what ifs and the maybes that that could come from it so i always i say always (laughs) i've learned to now um especially with with the tennis to to try and just be a little bit more optimistic about what's around the corner and you never know what could potentially be there like back then when i'm a seven eight year old i'm saying this is the worst thing to ever happen to me like absolutely hated being in a chair and really struggled mentally but if someone would have said but in 10 years time or 15 years time you're going to be doing this because of it then I would have gone, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to now yeah. be in the chair and if I know I'm going to get a life of that. And that's, the, I think, the way I always try and approach life in, in general now and in day-to-day because things can yeah, seem like it's the end of the world, but you just never know what doors might open because of it. And you're so inspiring to talk to. How, and I know you just got this award, the OBE Award. Congratulations on that. Thanks. How much of an inspiration is that for you? And how are you able to take your inspiring story to help others, to help kids, to get people more involved in, in the sport? Yeah, it's a real passion of mine. Mostly because I've had some personal experiences in the last few years as well that have made me aware of actually the platform that I have because I would say I'm quite a humble guy and I, I don't um, probably don't know how many people I really touch and affect, um, especially when it comes to this time of year. You know, we, we are getting a lot more exposure now and... Um, which is awesome oh it's yeah. incredible and yeah. you know I'm forever grateful for these events and organizations to to be putting wheelchair tennis on the map and putting it you know on the telly in front of more people on bigger courts because okay it's great for us to play in in those um, environments and situations and scenarios it's what us as tennis players absolutely love but there is actually a deeper meaning behind it and that meaning is you increase the visibility of a disabled sport which can maybe I don't know say there might be a a young kid out there with a disability who turns on the TV and suddenly they're watching wheelchair tennis and they might hear me speak or they might hear someone else talk or they might just be in awe of it and that could be the 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 difference for them for getting involved in sport and and potentially not Um, and and that's why I've realised you know these events the media um, things like the OBE they're just platforms to be able to try and share uh, a glimmer of hope to, to more people out there and, and a positive one and a and hopefully give them a bit of a yeah a bit of a purpose that it's, anything is possible if you just take that leap of faith that you can give it a go and you never know where it might take you in life Great to hear from Alfie Hewitt speaking there with Jill Krabus and he'll be hoping to add the Wimbledon singles title to the seven he already has across the three other Grand Slams. All the players will now be making their final preparations heading into Wimbledon and for some that means heading to events in Mallorca or in Eastbourne. And it's on the south coast of England where Taylor Fritz will be trying for his third title in five years. Candy Reid sat down with the big Americans coach Mike Russell and physio Wolfgang Oswald to talk about the physical side of grass court tennis. I mean, the grass is exponentially slower. My first Wimbledon, you couldn't even have a rally from the baseline. <laughs> it was literally just who could get to net faster, um, all serving and returning. So now there's a lot more movement. You really had to have good 
leg strength and good mobility, flexibility, because you're put in awkward positions with some of the bounces. And, you know, that's been really the biggest change I've seen in the grass. And Wolf, you were a tennis player yourself, so that obviously helps you understand what your player needs when they do change surfaces. Yeah, I play college tennis, so a decent enough level that I can understand, you know, you know the, the biomechanics. And I'm a big biomechanics geek, so I like to videotape a lot okay. and kind of analyze. And so, yeah, so I can help a little bit from that aspect. Given that you're so into biomechanics, who would you say of the current and perhaps the former model were the best players on grass, in your opinion? Wow, in terms of like movement. In yeah, terms so of let's like, go with movement. The best movers on grass that you've ever oh, seen. I don't know. And we'll exclude Taylor so you don't feel awkward. I mean, obviously Novak, he can hit that open stance backhand, you know. Oof, yes. So strong adductors. <laughs> Very good. He's in. Um, Check. <laughs> I mean, Fed, obviously. Okay. Sampras was amazing, you know. What made Sampras so good? He was so explosive, okay. you know. And, and it changed on era because obviously serve and volley like Edberg and Becker move very differently to the guys now, but they were exceptional what they did mm. moving forward and, and, and laterally when they're at the net. Right. Which is a lot different now, right? And, and that's what Mike was saying, movie, wasn't it? He's good on everything. Yeah. He's just explosive and just flexible and he has the whole shebang. So in the, when Mike was saying the Edberg era, it was more north to south. Now it's more east-west, but Alcaraz is good all over the place. Pretty good all over the place, yes. yes. <laughs> and that's something, Mike, that you, I think, have been working on with Taylor is his transition game because we know how good he is at the baseline. And he obviously plays a lot of doubles. He seems to almost always play doubles every week. Is that of your doing? I mean, we always want to see him play doubles. It's great serving and returning practice and getting more exposure at net. Love to see him come in even more. And he, he's getting more comfortable in that transition phase and in the forecourt. But... It's a progression. You know, he needs to continue to work on it. We sprinkle it in as much as we, we can, as, as Wolf and I like to use the micro-dosing term. Um, you know, any, so little and often? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, I think he has gotten more comfortable at net, and um, I think it's going to help him, you know, go deeper in tournaments, especially on faster surfaces. And uh, I've asked Wolf about his favorite players on grass, biomechanically, moving-wise. What about your best players on grass? If you have to rate them from one to five, from your era and from the, the current era, how would you do it? Well, it, it's funny because it's basically intertwined, and the best grass court players a lot of times have been the best movers. So you're looking at Sampras, you're looking at Federer, you're looking at Djokovic, mm -hmm. uh, Borg, yes. you know, won multiple Wimbledon titles, and then, you know, even Rafa and, you know, Andy has a – so it's just, you know, you look at the best grass court players – they have multiple grass court titles because they move so well. They're able to adapt not only from the baseline, but also moving forward. Remember how low Pat Cash used to get? Like, unbelievable mover on grass, right? Yeah, he was. And fellow Aussie, of course. Yes, yes. Ideally, for Taylor, um, it's a very, very short grass court season. Do you think the grass court season should be longer so players like Taylor can get a little bit more time on the green stuff? I definitely think it should be longer. I know they're talking about, and I'm making a, a master's event on grass, which I think is perfect because they already have multiple master's events on clay. You have multiple on hardcore, you have indoor. So it's only right that you make one on grass and make it fair for all the different types of playing styles out there. And, you know, Taylor loves playing on grass. It fits his, you know, serve plus one power game 
perfectly and you know hopefully he can he can finish this grass court season with some you know really good tennis a lot of players when they start in particular like a Holger Rune who didn't win a grass court match of three last year they do really struggle but Taylor's always seemed to really like it even though in the U.S. really aren't any grass courts apart from Newport he loves the the serve return and the serve plus one combination and it's you know it takes away a lot of the long matches not that Taylor doesn't like long matches but he's really good at the short points and power tennis and trying to take the racket out of the opponent's hand and you know that's that's no pun intended Taylor made for grass court tennis that's terrible but we'll keep it Sorry, just for you um, <laughs> Wolf just on the physio fitness side because the grass court season is short does that make it trickier for uh, uh, you in the, your super physio role we can't get as much volume gym-wise to prepare because you're coming from clay. It's tough to do the grass court stuff at the end of the clay and you're playing a slam and then you're just throwing straight into the grass. So like Mike said earlier, you have to microdose stuff in, some prehab in your warm-up, microdosing in some strengthening stuff. You can't just go, you know, like another sport, a few weeks of lead-up where you're doing the more grass-specific stuff and then straight into grass. We don't have that luxury. Finally this week, if you were listening last time, you'll have heard former Wimbledon champion Richard Krychek talking about his early years. Now, in the second part of that chat, he looks back on his ultimate breakthrough, his rivalry with the great Pete Sampras, and first, on coming to realise that he could beat the very best on grass. One important moment was for me to know that I had a chance to be top 100. It's the first national championships. Um, I was 400, I was playing futures, not so great. And then I played national championships for four matches. I won all four of them. And the last three, I beat top 100 players. One of them was almost top 50. Paul Harris was in the final, but Sharpers and Tom Nyssen were all top 100 players. And then I thought, okay, it's not that unbelievable level top 100. So that's doable. Yeah, then you work your way uh, to that. And then quickly I found out that if I serve well, I'm tough to break. And I made semi-final Australian Open, 92. And then everybody said, oh, you have such a great serve. You should do really well in Wimbledon. Uh, but there's three important things uh, at Wimbledon. Uh, you have to be a good serve, have a good serve, serve volley player. So that part is important. So that part was pretty good. But you have to move well, which I, I didn't. I mean, I was pretty quick, but I was tall and you have to... Yeah, your power of gravity, uh, center of gravity have to, has to be uh, uh, much lower, so bend your knees more. So I was slipping a lot, afraid to, to fall also. And the third thing really important is you have to hit good returns because you can win your serve game all the time, but you also have to sometimes break somebody. And yeah, so serve and volley, that part was good. And holding service games, I was tough to break. But the other two, the movement and the return of serve was horrible. And um, yeah, that's why I, I just wasn't playing that great on grass. And um, uh, But eventually uh, I learned it and somehow at Wimbledon 96, I was returning exceptionally well. And yeah, it's just one of those moments, you know, when, you, when things happen good for you, you have to take your chance uh, and I took it. So I'm happy for that. I know you've spoken about it a lot, a lot of times during the course of your, your life subsequently. But when you look at the history books and you see Sampras 93, 94, 95, 97, 98, 99, and 2000, and Krychek in between. What does it make you think? Yeah, I, I mean, if I if I uh, if I was just somebody who doesn't know anything about tennis, then it must be like the Sampras guy was probably sick that year or something like that. <laughs> no, so uh, yeah. You beat him a few times, didn't you? Yeah, we played ten times. I beat him six times, and actually the last time I was actually unlucky. I should have beat him last time. He was open, also I was set up. 
and that was six two up in a tiebreaker to go uh, to go two sets to love up he hit a couple of good shots Munse, oh, uh, one of them were lucky actually but okay uh, somehow i lost that match so now our head to head was six four instead of seven three look would have looked better seven three but anyway yeah i liked playing against him and uh, i was because of my serve also i was not afraid of anybody i knew if i serve well I have 50 percent of the match already. I can take it to a tiebreaker, and and I know that the, actually his um, his uh, former coach uh, said it to, to my coach. Actually, it's like yeah, yeah, I didn't like to play Richard because he didn't get the locker room win. Like uh, so many players, uh, Pete played against that before the match. He already knew, saw that they were like, "Oh, Semper so good," and uh, and I was like, "Yeah, he's an unbelievable player," but. If I serve well, at least I take it to a tiebreaker and let's see what happens then. So was this the same guy who had outlasted a young player in a 200-stroke rally playing moon balls who had the same mental strength that he wasn't afraid of Pete Sampras? Yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the biggest thing I learned from my dad. Uh, and my coach then was a Czech, also a Czech guy. My, my parents are both Czech is uh, everything was a game everything was a competition if it was uh, we played tennis we did rallies we did mini tennis uh, even when we played uh, monopoly and uh, my dad always uh, let me win a little bit or sometimes not uh, that it was like always close enough that i cared and and um, i used to cry a lot when i uh, lost or even when i was behind so when i was losing so and then through my tears somehow i managed to turn the match around or my dad would shout from the side that i had to whatever do something and yeah so everything was f for winning and i think that's also the reason why when i went to one-handed backhand i found a way like uh, you could think no no i have to practice it backhand then i was like okay uh, i have one hand backhand i stick with that but I have to stand now more in the f in the backhand corner to hit more forehands. Plus, I have to get to the net. So I was always finding a way uh, to uh, to win. Can I ask you a more serious one? When you won the Wimbledon title in 1996, was your dad there? No, he wasn't there. No, my relationship with my dad has been really bad for a long time. Actually, since my parents divorced when I was like 16 years old, I think 15, 16. Um, for a couple of years I didn't talk to him and during the course of the rest of my career I sometimes I saw him I tried again you know I said okay he's my dad and then after a couple of months I was like oh yeah phew, that's why I don't talk to the guy uh, so then I didn't talk to him for a couple of years again and uh, yeah so yeah it was not until like the last months of my career he suddenly appeared in front of my door and yeah I was more chilled out and actually then I yeah noticed that as long as we don't play talk about tennis or my actually more specific my tennis yeah. we can talk about other tennis then um then actually you know we we, we i had always good memories oh had such a laugh with him everything was good but about my tennis there was never a laughing matter and yeah he, he in the beginning of my career he didn't agree with a lot of things and i i felt a very good coach who with rowan and he helped me go from 400 to number four winning the wimbledon title and and my dad thought he was too friendly he said the only good coach is the coach you hate you have to hate him because he takes you to the court and he works you so hard and and every day you have to be so angry with him that you hate him and that's a good coach i said ah, that's not my coach you know i i like my coach actually so anyway so that yeah and that's just a small example uh, how he every time to hear that so no with my dad it's um it's now very good you know he was very good with the kids when they were young uh and and now i still every two months i i go to czech republic because that's where he lives and uh visit him so uh he can come to tennis when i'm not playing so <laughs>
Our thanks to former Wimbledon champion Richard Krychek and all this week's guests. Next week, Chris Bowers will take over as we look ahead to the wonderful fortnight that is Wimbledon. In the meantime, you can keep up to date with all that's going on in Mallorca and Eastbourne on the ATP WTA Live app. You can also watch all the action, remember, live on Tennis TV. And for everything else, including all the latest news, head to atptour.com. I'm Seb Lozier. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the tennis. <laughs>